following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So we are in the final week of Advent. Advent, as we've been saying, is a season of anticipation. And uh, Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Jesse, um, shared with us during the first week uh, a, a great um, teaching about how the Christian calendar works and the rhythms that are contained in it. And he talked about how uh, the Christian calendar is cycles of expectation, fulfillment, and proclamation. That's true at Advent going into Christmas. It's true at Lent going into Easter. And it's true at Pentecost, in the season that leads up to Pentecost. Um, which is, that third one is one that we have not celebrated quite as much recently. We did something with it last year. This year we're going to expand on that a little bit, a little bit more. So that's something to look forward to. Um, but these cycles of expectation, fulfillment, and proclamation really do shape the Christian calendar, help us understand our sense of time uh, as, as people of Christian faith. And we've been talking about how we wait during Advent in expectation for three different ways that Jesus comes to us. Two weeks ago, we talked about what Christians call the second coming. This is the belief that Christ will one day return to judge the world, as the creed said that we spoke earlier, and to restore and create a new heavens and earth. So that anticipation of the second coming engenders in us both a sense of longing for when things will be made new and also a sense of fear for that moment of judgment and how that might affect us. Last week we talked briefly about the idea that, that Christ also comes to each one of us personally and that during Advent we ought to be anticipating that arrival of Jesus. And then we heard a wonderful story from Carolyn and Ryan about uh, how the presence and closeness of Christ has formed their own life and the direction that they've taken. In this case, to Indonesia and now on to Korea. So I guess in that sense, this type of coming of Christ can also engender some longing and maybe some fear. <laughs> um, certainly some longing that, that you would know God, that you would be reconciled to God in Christ. We all have that longing, even if we can't put our fingers on what, what exactly it is. I think we all have that longing. But maybe it's also a little bit of fear of what's going to happen if I take that step of faith. Is he going to send me to Korea? <laughs> right? Or worse, like Henrietta. <laughs> right? uh, a little Rochester tip. There's nothing in Henrietta that you need that you can't get more sanely in Victor. <laughs> and we shall never speak of Greece. <laughs> um, anyway, that's uh, probably not something we should talk very much about. So that's, that's the, uh, the um, I was going to say the first and second coming of, of Christ, but that's confusing because we call one of them the second coming. It's the first one and the second one that we talked about two weeks ago and last week. And today, we're going to talk... Uh, in our conclusion of the season of Advent, finally thinking about the most common understanding of Christ's coming to earth, the one that most obviously leads us to Christmas, and that is, of course, the arrival of Jesus at an, as an infant in a particular place 
in a particular time to a particular people. Theologians call this the scandal of particularity, which is one of my favorite nerdy Bible God things to say. It's actually not a biblical phrase, but it's a theological phrase. The scandal of particularity. The idea that if God is going to incarnate and become a human being on earth, that by definition has to happen at a particular place and time and among a particular people. Jesus happened to come 2,000 years ago as a man to the Hebrew people, um, to the Jewish people. So today we, we sort of try to inhabit the longing of the Hebrew people as they waited for this long prophesied Messiah, this anointed king. We're going to try to see how that very localized, particularized, specific arrival of Christ, we're going to see how that's described in the Bible, and we're going to try to see what in the world it might have to do with us, because after all, we are also in a particular place in time and history, and it's, it's really quite far, quite removed from the particular time that Jesus came to earth. Hello, Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to preach the gospel. Let's not, let's not hold her back. Whatever she would say might make more sense than what I'm going to say anyway. So, so we're going to try to do those two things. See what the Bible tells us about this particular arrival and see how that, what that might have to do with us, okay? So before we do that, I want to pause for a moment of prayer because this is kind of a big package of things that we have to um, break down and understand and figure out. So let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom. Jesus, we are reminded that you are here with us, that you are the God who is with us. We pray now that as we look at lots of scripture and uh, try to sort of fly through it and, and understand it, what it meant and what it means, that your Holy Spirit would be among us, that we would understand what it means to be children of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Amen. Okay, so we're going to try to inhabit the waiting of the people of Israel and then figure out how that might be, uh, what it might have to do with us. So what we're going to do is read all four of the assigned Bible passages today. We've been using the Revised Common Lectionary, some version of it, for the past few weeks. It's just a collection of scripture texts that are assigned to the weeks of the year. Um, another way to observe the Christian calendar. And uh, so far in Advent, we've been spacing them out and inserting them to different points in the liturgy. Today, I want to read them basically back to back to back to back and um, pause briefly in between them to talk about what they, what they are. Um, the reason I want to do that is because they, they do kind of link one to the next and um, there's, you can think of them sort of chronologically. Uh, we don't know actually for a fact that the psalm reading, which is going to be the uh, first reading, is, was written before Isaiah, which is the second reading, but... Um, the, the narrative arc will make sense in this order. So uh, I have recruited four readers to come this morning, and I gave them their text just this morning. So uh, if there's any uh, struggle with names and things like that, it's because I didn't do a good job of getting it to them ahead of time. But Psalm 80 is the first one. And who's, who's reading Psalm 80? Is that you, Del? 
That, yes, it is. I, that's, I also forgot to put the, the, uh, the words on that one. You can come right up to this microphone here. This is Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7, and then it jumps ahead to 17 through 19. And if you'd like to read along, I've got the page numbers up here in this barely legible script, um, so you can find them in the Red Bibles. <laughs> Everybody ready? Okay. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But let your hand be upon the one who at your your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Thank you, Dell. So, all four of these passages are so rich and dense. It's going to be really hard for me not to preach four sermons today, but I'm going to do my best. And if I start to ramble, you just kind of give me one of these. Like, wave me down, right? <laughs> Call me back. <laughs> so, you can hear in that text this, this, this national longing on the part of the people of Israel, can't you? How long will you be angry with the prayers of your people? Have you ever thought that before? I am praying and praying and praying, and apparently God is pissed at me because nothing is happening. <laughs> right? The, the whole nation of Israel was saying, not probably not those exact words, but, but that concept. How long do I have to eat and drink tears, O oh Lord? And one thing you should do when you're studying the Bible is, is especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, because they're, they're, there's so much poetry built into this language, and it's sometimes hard to catch it in the English translation, but one thing you can do to catch the poetry is to look for repeated things. So parallelism, if you're... Um, sorry, science nerds, I'm going to be a, a humanities nerd today. If you, if you see things like uh, eating the tears, uh, drinking the tears in full measure, they're put, he, the, the writer is putting these two ideas next to each other in parallel, and that's, that kind of gives you a poetic um, latch to grab onto. In this case, the thing I want to point out is that repeated line. Did anybody catch that line that was repeated three times? It gradually expands with a little bit more detail. Somebody's nodding her head. What, what is the line? Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So if you are studying the scriptures, you, if, you, if you're not like... Um, uh, one of those people who, who has a twitch about writing or highlighting in a, in a beautiful printed book, you could, you could do things like underline or highlight in the same color sections of scripture that repeat themselves, and then you get a visual cue of what's going on in this text. Um, if you don't do that, then maybe you could print it off. That's what I do, because I don't like to write in books. You print it off and like, highlight the things, or put a square around this, this word every time it appears, and a circle around that word every time it appears. It's a great way to get a visual understanding of what's going on. In this case, the, the phrase that is repeated three times throughout this psalm really helps us inhabit that longing, that expectation, that waiting. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
All right, so you're feeling that a little bit? Are you starting to feel a little bit like you're, you're getting into the story of the people of Israel? All right. So uh, our second reading is from Isaiah chapter 7. And one of you guys has that, right? Thank you, Seth. Um, this is verses 10 through 14 of Isaiah. This is one of the uh, prophets of Israel. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then, I dis- then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Thank you, Seth. I love that part of the beginning. I find it so amusing. I can't resist just highlighting it. That, that he says, ask a sign. As deep as Sheol, high as the heavens, at anything. Shoot for the moon, as Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. Whatever you want, ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, oh, no, Lord, I couldn't possibly put you to the test. Actually sort of citing this commonly understood idea in the Hebrew scriptures. You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, when God tells you to do it, that makes it okay, right? <laughs> oh no, I'm far too pious to do that, oh Lord. I love that. I'm sure that we do some version of that in our own lives, don't we? Like, God just wants to, to bless us with something and we think, oh no, I'm too holy for that. <laughs> like, what? Does, that doesn't even make sense. Now, there is some historical context to what's happening to the people of Israel here with Ahaz and the division of the kingdoms and all that stuff that, that might make this passage fit a little better into history for us if we're a historical-minded person. It might give it a little more context and so forth. But um, for now, I just want to focus on that last little bit, the last verse. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. That name, Emmanuel, in this, uh, in this text is with an I. When we see it a little bit later in the New Testament, it's with an E, but it's the same word. It's, a, it's an extension of God's Hebrew name, El, that means God is with us, Emmanuel. We used to sing a song growing up in church called Emmanuel. And uh, there's, there's uh, certain parts of my faith that I grew up with that, that, I'm, that I kind of wish were not in my memory and consciousness, but this particular song is very beautiful. I won't sing it for you now, but um, it's, uh, it's never left me just from, from week after week of hearing it and year after year of hearing it. God with us, revealed in us. His name is called Emmanuel. This is a really significant concept, especially when you juxtapose it with the other ways that God is described in the Hebrew Scriptures. Right? We sometimes, I think, set up this false dichotomy between the, the loving buddy Christ of the New Testament and the mean old lightning bolt Zeus God of the Old Testament, right? Again, I think that's a false dichotomy, but much of how God is described in the Old Testament is things like he, he is mighty and powerful and you can't look on his face. And uh, even, the, even the temple worship was set up in such a way that God's present, presence was localized in a room that was not even in the holy place. It was in the most holy place. It was, it was a room off a room with a curtain 
that only, only the high priest could ever go into, and even he could only go into it once a year on the Day of Atonement because God's presence was so mighty and awesome, like not in an 80s gnarly rad awesome way, but awesome way. Like it will, it will bust you down. You can't even get near it without, without literally like doing an incantation with, with animal's blood. That's how, that's how holy God's presence is. And here he's named God who is with us. It's an amazing other side of the coin. The name Emmanuel appears in a couple of the songs today, I think. It's, it is the name of God that is most commonly associated with the season of Advent, and with good reason for thinking about Christ arriving. So Isaiah takes that longing that, that was held um, communally by the people of Israel, and he's saying something is going to happen. You're going to see a sign when the young woman gives birth, and that, that phrase young woman is translated and understood to be virgin um, it's kind of like a euphemism uh, it, it, when it's quoted later you'll hear the word virgin it sort of means the same thing in, in, in the Isaiah passage you're going to see this sign and suddenly God is going to be with you are you starting to get that sense of, of Jewish Hebrew national and religious identity are you, are you inhabiting that longing yet? Well, our third reading is the gospel reading this morning, and it's from Matthew 1, and Kristen has that one for us. Um, We kind of like become very traditional in fits and starts here at Artisan, but one of the things that we like to do during this time of year is to stand for the reading of the gospel. So would you stand together as Kristen reads this? Um, This is the story of the birth of Jesus. This is the most basic part of what what we're here to talk about. So... Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just as he resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had a born son, and he named him Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So this story is the hinge point. This passage is the hinge point in, in, in the big narrative arc that we're looking at today. And not only in the, in the narrative arc of these particular scripture passages, but I would say also in all of history. Everything in the world is set on this one brief period of a few decades that began 2,000 years ago. Of course, in the Western world, we have codified that uh, with, with the Roman calendar, the Gregorian calendar. 
it's not so in the Eastern culture. But I do believe that the same hinge is present spiritually for all people, even those who are out of so-called Christendom in the, the 1040 window where Carolyn and Ryan are going back to. But you see that recurrence of the name Emmanuel. Matthew's writing this text to a group of people who would have immediately made the connection to the prophecy from Isaiah because it quotes it at the end there. And this is a uh, pre-Gutenberg society, right? So you couldn't just call up Isaiah chapter 7 on your iPad then. You had to call it up on your brain. So memorization was a huge thing in this culture. Plus it was largely pre-literate, so you could have called it up on an iPad and they would have after gone like, oh, that's cool, can I play Angry Birds? They would have said, I don't even know what those letters are because I'm illiterate. So... (laughs) And you'd say, you shouldn't play so much Angry Birds. Maybe you know how to read. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, somebody, somebody wave me down. <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> so the connection would have been instant for the hearers here and the readers. Oh, what he's saying is that Jesus is the one who was prophesied by Isaiah. It would have been an immediate connection for his, his audience, Matthew's audience. But if this passage in Matthew is a hinge, and on one side is a, a, of the door is a room that contains the, the history and religious faith of the Hebrew people, Judaism, what is, what is on the other side of the door? To what does that Hinge, open us. Well, I don't know. Is it, a, is, it a, is it a new room? Is it a secret passageway? I think that our fourth passage today has the answer to that question. Our fourth passage shows us where this door opens. Come on up. Yeah, it's fine. Shows us, shows us what this hinge opens to. And this is, a, this is from uh, Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. It's the first few verses of that letter. It's his greeting to them. And I want you to notice that everything that Matt is about to read comprises one sentence <laughs> in English. And this will give you a sense of, um, of Paul's style. So go ahead and read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, for which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among, among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All right. Thank you, Matt. So after that, Paul's going to start actually saying something. <laughs> right? This is why doing a series on Romans would be really hard, because that's seven verses of the first chapter, and uh, it's all that dense. <laughs> so it would take us a long time. Maybe we'll do it someday. My beard will be gray by the time we're finished. Don't say it. <laughs> I know you see that gray, but don't say it. So this is all one sentence. And you think, I'm prone to rabbit trails? Paul's like, no, 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 And then he brings it back. Just like me, he always makes it back. Right? <laughs> he always gets back to his point. You know, speaking of rabbit trails, there's a couple of... <laughs> There's a couple of little points. No, no, don't weigh me down. I've got to say these ones. Um, I just want to throw these off to the side because they're so good. Um, the, the stuff that Paul says, not what I'm just going to say, is so good. And, and then we'll land on the question of who this Jewish figure is from the first century and what it has to do with a bunch of uh, non-Jewish people from the 21st century. The first is a very big theological point about who Jesus is, and it happens with another sort of parallelism. Right? Verses 3 and 4. The gospel, according, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And we're going to see that, that, that phrase, according to, again in a second. So he's descended from David in, uh, in his body as a human being. And was declared to be son of God, so descended from God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. In that one little dense sentence there, you have Paul throwing out one of the most profound truths about who Jesus is. Fully human. Descended from David, a, a, a Hebrew king, in his body. And there's a genealogy that happens there. Some of you know, begat, 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 begat. That's another kind of thing, saying Jesus was a human being. Descended from David according to the flesh, which is kind of a New Revised standard version way of saying in his body. And then descended, what does it say? <coughs> Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. He is fully human, and yet he is fully God. This is the, one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. Paul puts them right here with that little phrase, according to. According to the flesh, according to the spirit. And by the way, that dichotomy, flesh and spirit, is something that Paul trots out again and again and again and again and again in, in so many of his writings. It starts with Jesus. And I have lost my page. There we go. Sorry. Um, some of you know that I'm a huge fan of the early church writings. Fathers mostly. Occasionally you'll find an early church mother who, whose work made it through the ages. Uh, Chromatius of Aquileia, which is like, that's like a name for a prog rock band or something. Um, he said this of Jesus. He assumed visible flesh to demonstrate his invisible divinity. He took from us what is ours, our bodies, in order to give generously what is his. Oh, man, man, I have to stop, because that, man, that's a sermon right there. Chromatius of Aquileia. And then the second little rabbit trail I want to give you, it's not really a rabbit trail, because this is like a, 
uh, angular, back to the main road. It's a little phrase that Paul tosses off in the middle of this big long sentence. It's the phrase, the obedience of faith. Did you catch that? Does that seem like a weird phrase at all, the obedience of faith? It's what, he, it's what he's sort of describing what his job is as an apostle, right? The job of anyone who preaches the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. And I think that this phrase gives us a great clue about the nature of faith, what Christian faith really is and what it isn't. As you know, this is an issue that is very important to me and close to me. And and I think it's something that resonates with us as a community. Some people think of faith as basically somehow magically or otherwise forcing yourself to believe something which is otherwise unbelievable. And you can say you have faith. That is not how I define faith. Rather than give you that whole sermon again, I'll just return to this. The obedience of faith. There's a little clue there that something, that faith has something to do with obedience. Obedience has something to do with faith. And that makes sense if you think about it. You can will yourself with your eyes clenched shut to think you believe something and stand there and and don't move and just... I believe, I believe, I believe it's true. But it doesn't actually mean anything. And I would also submit to you, it doesn't actually change your heart one tiny little bit, forcing yourself into something like that, unless you take a step that indicates that you do believe. And the really ironic and so like challenging thing about Christian faith is that sometimes it's hard to see where the belief happens. Sometimes it seems like it happens after you take the step. Like you get just enough understanding and belief to start to take your foot up off the floor. And it's not until you're in motion that the faith sort of seats in your soul a little bit. And that paralysis of sitting there trying to force yourself to believe something that you, like the virgin birth that you know is scientifically impossible doesn't do you any good. It's obedience that does you good <laughs> regarding faith. And so that's the phrase that's going to push us back into understanding what this Advent story has to do with us. Because if you read on in that verse, again, his language is so dense and it just goes on and on and on. It's like this just never-ending stream. It's his job to bring about the obedience of faith in whom? In whom does Paul say he is called to bring about the obedience of faith? Who has it? What comes next? In all the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles is just, if you don't know, it's a term that means somebody who's not Jewish. Okay? So, here's a little bit of sociological math to you. If you take two groups of people, one group of people is people who are Jewish, the other group of people is people who are not Jewish, what percentage of the human population do we have? 100. (laughs) Right? So all the people who are Jewish, all the people who are not Jewish. The Jews and the Gentiles together makes up the whole human race. Okay? And it's, remember, he's writing to the, to the Gentiles and, and the Jews, to all the people in the city of Rome. Now, you don't have to know very much history or culture to have some picture of what, what Rome was like at the end of the first century when this letter was probably written. 
You all have some kind of, like, could you nod your head if you think you have some picture of what Rome was like from, from school or movies or whatever, right? Huh? Bedsheets. Oh, the togas, yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more than that, Ken, but thank you. <laughs> See, Jesus was born in this little town of Bethlehem, and that doesn't, that seems so far removed from us. A little tiny town based on a, a relatively, little, at the time, little tiny religion, centered on a very specific ethnic group of people. That doesn't make any sense to us. We're in Rochester in the 21st century. But Rome, the audience of this letter, that's a little closer to home. Rome was obsessed with technology, art, culture. It engaged and allowed religious belief kind of like with a wink. Like, yeah, Zeus, sure, whatever. Just enough to provide a little bit of cultural structure. Just enough to serve the public good and give people something to care about and, and a reason for the government to kill people. Aside from that last bit about the government killing people, does that sound a little bit more like Rochester than Bethlehem does? So is this story now coming a little bit closer to home to you? We sort of tried to inhabit it maybe emotionally and, and with, this, with this literature of the, the Jewish faith. This call to faith, though, to the Gentiles in Rome, I think gives us the answer to the question, if, if the gospel story is a hinge, and on one side is the room that contains the Jewish religion and the Hebrew faith, what's on the other side of that door? What does the hinge open us to? I would submit that it opens the front door of that little house and invites the entire world in. Again, when you take two subsets of people and one of them is people who are Jewish and one is people who are not, that's everybody. That's the invitation. That's the uh, spiritual reality that, that Jesus brings to the world. And then, look at what comes next in that verse. He's as an apostle called to bring the obedience of faith to all the Gentiles, including yourselves. So if you were enjoying or maybe ignoring this little lecture that I've been giving, um, sort of passively so far this morning, just going, oh, that's interesting. He's got some thoughts on the Jewish faith and Roman culture and language and poetry. And if you're kind of disconnected from all of that stuff, that disconnection has to stop now because Paul has dropped the second person pronoun on you. That word, you, kind of removes from you the option of ignoring it, right? Yes, I know he wrote it to those other people, but it's my belief that these scriptures speak to us um, as well. He's called to preach the gospel to all the Gentiles, including yourselves. And then he says this bit about being called to be saints. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. And that's where I think it gets really even more personal. 
And it connects us to that Hebrew story, to the expectation in Israel of an anointed king, a Messiah, connects us to that, that third type of coming of Christ, the type that involves him coming to our personal selves. I want to read that last, last little bit to you directly out of the scriptures because Paul says it so much better than I would. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome and in Rochester, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question then that I want each of you to answer, you don't have to do it out loud, do you, do you feel that in your own heart? Do you, have, do you have any sense that you are called to belong to Jesus Christ? That you are called to be a saint? Because I do think the call is universal. And, um, you know, I probably have this, this block pastorally, partly of kind of ways I've seen this, this idea abused. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like a joke. It's, it's sort of, there's an internet meme, you know, do you have time to speak about our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, <laughs> um, knocking on someone's door or uh, accosting somebody in a parking lot um, or with a megaphone outside of Frontier Field or wherever the play the hoser ball. Um, Blue Cross Arena, thank you. Um, you've seen these guys, and they're essentially asking you the same question that I've just asked you. Do you have any sense that you're called to belong to Jesus Christ? Do you have any sense that you're called to be a saint? And even though I really just wholeheartedly reject their uh, methodology, um, and maybe just because it would not make any sense for me as a person to do that, I can't, I, I mean, I can't help but ask you that same question. It's, it's what the scripture and this whole story asks of us. And so that's how I have to leave you, is with that question. If you don't already feel like you belong to Jesus, if you don't already feel like you're a saint, um, in the um, very gracious theological definition of that word, Do you feel that pull on your heart? Have you felt it throughout this season of Advent? If so, you need to respond to that. Our prayer team will be up here today. They would love to pray with you. Um, I'll be around close, so I won't be up here with them today, but if you want to tap me and talk to me about that, I would be so happy to talk with you about that. And it wouldn't be creepy, I promise. (laughs) It might be a little awkward, but that's kind of the way faith is. It's It's that step, right? It's hard. It's sort of stuttering. If you want to be very um, safe about it, you could write something on an info card and let me know that way. We could, we could talk over email or text message or whatever it would be like. 
I think it's important, though, if you're sensing that call, that you respond to it and that you share that response with somebody because otherwise you can just tuck it in your back pocket and uh, accidentally let it go through the wash. And by the time we get next week, whatever spiritual experience you've had will just be like disintegrated paper. So it's important to share that with, with me or with somebody, with your friend who, who came with, whatever it might be. Let's pray together because I'm going way too long. <laughs> but these texts are so good. Sorry. God, uh, we know you as Emmanuel, God who is with us, and we pray uh, that, that we would know that even more as we approach the day uh, where we celebrate your birth. Celebrate the incarnation, the coming of Jesus as God with us. I would pray now specifically for anyone who uh, is sensing a, a call that, that they belong to you, Jesus. Give them the courage to step out and, and, and make that obedience be the reality of their faith. Uh, one little stuttering step at a time. I pray that it be the beginning of a, of a lifelong journey um, where the steps are not always sure and the line is not always straight, but the guide is always true because it's you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, our table's open now, and uh, you are welcome to come and receive the sacrament of communion. This is an open table at Artisan for anybody who's following Jesus. Um, how steady your steps are, how straight the line is, it does not matter. Um, you can take and uh, tear off a piece of the, uh, this type of unleavened bread today. It's kind of like a cracker. You can dip it in the wine or the juice. Receive that as food for your souls. Do it as an act of remembering Christ's sacrifice for you. And do it as an act of unity with your brothers and sisters in this room and beyond. Um, As we celebrate the Sacrament of Communion, we'll continue to worship in song. And uh, somebody from our prayer team will be here. If you'd like personal prayer, you can do that. Um, Respond to the Spirit as you sense his leading. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.